Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, May 26, 1967. The Beatles Come to America. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome to the Beatles Come to America podcast, and I am your host, Tom Galker, along with the Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin. What does the summer of love smell like? Hmm, I don't know about that, but I can tell you what it sounds like. And it's right here on this album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was released May 26, 1967. It's cool that this album is the unofficial soundtrack of the modern social revolution. Since Capitol Records stopped chopping up the records, the podcast will just be a little longer, more songs, and more to chat about. Before we get into this landmark album, we do have some housekeeping notes to get through. I have a podcast, and it's called Something Came From Baltimore, which is a music interview podcast. has more jazz and R&B than blues, and it's not really about Baltimore, but we want you to subscribe. The link is in the show notes, and we want you to be a part of that Be More Music scene. The Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin, is also all-knowing when it comes to the Beatles, and he sweats that Beatle DNA. Follow him on his Facebook page, Come Together with the Beatles and Brooke Halpin. The link is in the show notes also. We also have a Facebook page called The Beatles Come to America. And what we're asking you to do is rank the best albums to the worst. It's a lot harder than you think. And as a bonus, at the end of every episode of The Beatles Come to America, we have a Brooke Halpin original song. So you'll want to stay for that. We hope you subscribe, participate, and enjoy. Just remember, we love The Beatles so love us in the comments. Enjoy our other creative projects. Now, they've been going in and out of style, but they're guaranteed to raise a smile. Let's start the interview. It's The Beatles Come to America, Episode 12. The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Okay, so on the phone today, we have the one and only, the Beatle guru, Brooke Halpin, and it's The Beatles Come to America. It's a part of the Something Came from Baltimore series. Welcome, Brooke, to The Beatles Come to America. Well, thank you, Tom. It's always great to be with you. Oh, my God. Uh, this album, and by the way, I'm holding the original copy that I got in 1967. I must admit that it is a bit tattered. I mean, first of all, <laughs> you, you, you look at the cover and you go, what the hell is going on now? We haven't heard from the lads in almost a year, coming off Revolver in August of 66. And then they come out with this album. And when you look at the cover, there's eight Beatles on the cover. What is that all about? Well, there's the wax figures of the earlier Beatles when they were the mop tops. And then you have them dressed up in their day glow uniforms. And that's the Sergeant. Now, now they're Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So it's a band within the band. This is not the Beatles, okay? I mean, we know it's the Beatles. But. They created an alter ego, if you will, and they became another band. And they said they wanted to do it so that they would have the freedom to do whatever they wanted to do in the recording studio. They were no longer touring, and they didn't have to think about, well, gee whiz, we're going to have to play these songs live. No, nope, no more live performances. It gave them an incredible amount of freedom just because of that, and they indulged in it with this album. This album cover, as I'm looking at it right now, there are 71 images of people on this album cover. 
This was an absolute friggin' nightmare for Brian Epstein because he had to get clearances for using the likeness of all these people's images. And of course, some of the people were no longer with us. They had deceased. Yeah, I'm looking at Marilyn Monroe and Tom Mix and Laurel and Hardy and Edgar Allan Poe. So Stockhausen is on here. This is incredible. Mae West, as a matter of fact, she, she got the letter and she wrote a letter back and said, why would I want to be a member of a Lonely Hearts Club? <laughs> so she didn't want to be included. And then they wrote back and said, oh, no, no, it's just the name of the band. It's not really a Lonely Hearts Club. And then you look at the bottom of the image below the big bass drum, and it has the Beatles' own flowers, and then it looks like a bass guitar with like three or four strings and yellow flowers. And then you have Father McKenzie, who's emerged. He's coming up from the dirt. Now, at the time, no one thought, oh, gosh, what's Father McKenzie doing coming up from the dirt? Well, as the years went by and then people would start to analyze everything, people say, oh, well, you know what it is? It's a graveside. The Beatles are dead. That's why the, the four younger Beatles are looking down on the grave. You know, they're mourning, their faces are sad, and then you have the new band replacing the Beatles. I mean, all this interpretation was going on, not at the time, not in 67, but it certainly did create a lot of stir, and even to this very day, you know, there are some people who believe that this is a, a grave site, and that, you know, Paul McCartney was dead, and that Billy Shears took his place, and that's why... If there is Billy Shears, you know, Billy Shears, and then all that kind of stuff. The other thing that is very interesting that I thought was interesting even back in 67, if you look on the far right side of, of the album cover, it says, Welcome the Rolling Stones, and it says, Good Guys. This is a, like a, a doll, a pretty large doll, female, you know, a little girl doll. And it made sense because the Rolling Stones were actually, they attended the A Day in the Life recording session. Brian Jones, Keith Richards, and Mick Jagger were there. And they were also at the broadcast, at the worldwide broadcast, when they did All You Need Is Love worldwide broadcast. So they were chums. John and Paul sang on one of the Rolling Stones songs back in the summer of 67, the song called We Love You. So anyhow, it's, it's just fascinating to see the we welcome the Rolling Stones. In other words, there was no competition between the two bands. They were, they were very charming. And then the question is, why is it a Lonely Hearts Club? Who's lonely? Yeah, these are the Beatles who, by the way, there's all these figures behind them. It's as if they are audience. If they're bringing the audience onto the album cover. For the first time, we see an audience or you might say fans, but I think it's their audience. These are people that John and Paul picked out that they wanted on the cover. George only asked for three different gurus, and Ringo didn't really care. He didn't say anything. He said whatever they want to do. So the cover alone is like, okay, well, we're in for something quite different, ladies and gentlemen. And then you turn to the back cover, and all of the lyrics on the album are printed, on the back, which I believe was the first. Interestingly enough, you have the four Beatles on the bottom, but Paul has his back toward us. We don't know why it's Paul's back. And then George Harrison is pointing to lyrics on the back. You can see his finger. He's pointed to Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock as the day begins. 
so this is another clue. This is another clue because that's when supposedly when Paul McCartney died in the car crash. Is all this stuff, this album cover is loaded with all types of clues. And then you open up the cover and inside you see a large photograph of the four Beatles. It looks like they're sitting down, at least Paul is anyway. And John and Paul look pretty, pretty good. George looks a little mysterious, and Ringo is rather expressionless. He doesn't have much of an expression. And they're all decked out. Paul's got a metal on, and he's got, there's an OPD patch on his, well, I guess that would be his left arm. And the people said, oh, he was officially pronounced dead. That's what that stood for and all this nonsense. And then you pull out the album, and the album is in a sleeve. I'm going to have it right here. I have the original sleeve. And it's like a psychedelic red, pink, it's a gradation, gradation of different shades from red to white. And it's like a swirling design. And then, of course, you got the Capitol Records uh, LP inside, which I have right here. And then we put the record on. Oh, my God. All right, Tom. So are we ready to talk about each track now? Uh, we always like to ask... First, since uh, you lived it, what was the first time that you heard Sgt. Pepper? And, and before we go into the tracks, just like what was your reaction? Okay. It just so happened that the album was released in the U.S. on June 2nd. And that is the birthday of my girlfriend at the time. So I bought this for her for her birthday on June 2nd. It was released that day. And I was able to get it at the record shop. And we played it. And I believe that I had already heard some of the tracks on the radio. I'm quite sure that the two big radio stations in Hartford, Connecticut, were playing some of the tracks, if not all of the tracks. I do know that that summer, that some radio stations, they played the entire album uninterrupted. You know, it, no one, nobody would have done that. No one was doing that for any other band, but that's what they were doing. So, I listened to it with Elaine, that was my girlfriend at the time, and we were completely stunned and blown away and excited because we were hearing things that we never heard before. I mean, we knew the Revolver was innovative. This completely blew Revolver away. It's like, how in the hell can you outdo Revolver? <laughs> but they did. They did with this album. What they did was they brought the audience, they brought the fans into the recording studio. That's why the album starts off with an audience. They put the audience on the cover because they were not touring anymore. So they wanted to do that, which is a brilliant idea. And it's a concept album. This is the first time that there is a cohesiveness that exists from track one to the final track of the LP. A friend of mine had one of the first stereos that came out, and he had uh, the stereo version of this. And we were hearing things we'd never heard before because the voices would be moving from the right speaker to the center and then to the left speaker. And then when you got into something like, good morning, good morning, you could actually hear the animals crossing doing the crossfade from right to left.
creativity on this LP, you know, not, not to slight the creativity on preceding albums, especially Revolver and Rubber Soul, but this is a standalone, and this is Paul's baby. This is Paul's album. So I can tell you that when hearing it, everybody I knew the summer of 1967, that's all we played. Everybody played this album. The radio stations played this album. People were singing the songs everywhere I went. I went to Los Angeles the summer of 1967, and it's the same thing was happening in Los Angeles that was happening in Connecticut. As a matter of fact, Johnny Rivers released a song in 1967 called Summer Rain, and he actually says, all summer long we were dancing in the sand. Everybody just kept on playing Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. I mean, that's how real it was. It was so overwhelming that everybody, it was like a party. It was as if the Beatles had created a party, and we wanted to be part of the band. We were part of the Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club band, but no one thought, oh, gee whiz, I don't want to be a member of a Lonely Hearts Club band. Why didn't they call it Sgt. Pepper's Happy Hearts Club band? Why is it a Lonely Hearts Club band? You know, then you get into the, again, you get into this whole thing about, well, why are they lonely? Oh, they're lonely because, well, Paul died in November of 1966. Or you could say that they were lonely because they no longer are performing in front of their audience. Anyhow, it was a, a phenomenal time, and this album was the album that dominated the airwaves and everyone's lives. The summer of 1967, it didn't matter where you were in the world, especially in, in the U.S. and in the U.K. This was it. This was the most exciting thing that was going on. And, I mean, this album, it, it won like four Grammy Awards in 1968, which is crazy. I mean, that's how celebrated, as you said, this album is. It's just, it's unparalleled, absolutely unparalleled. And there's one thing, it's like, okay, well, how do they come up with the title for the band? Do you know the story? Do you know the story, Tom? Paul was looking at, um, like, the large names of, like, Big Brothers Holding Company or Quicksilver Messenger Service, and that they were really long. How he picked out Sgt. Pepper, I don't know. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things. Oh, well, this is true. He went to Africa with Mal Evans in November. Why Paul went down to Africa with Mal Evans is a mystery. Again, there's some speculation that it was the new guy, and they did plastic surgery on the new guy to make him look like Paul McCartney. Anyhow, when they flew back, they were on the plane, and they were serving them lunch or dinner, and of course, there were salt and pepper shakers in first class, of course. Paul looked at the salt and pepper shaker, and Mal looked at it, and so oh, pepper. So we got salt, we got pepper. And supposedly, Paul got the idea, oh, that's a great idea for the band. You know, we'll call ourselves Sergeant Pepper. I don't know about that. What's interesting is that there was a band in Liverpool in 1964, right around, you know, the whole Mersey Beat, Beatlemania, and it was a band called Billy and the Pepper Pots. Josh, 
like, did Paul know about Billy and the Pepper Pots? I don't know. Maybe he did. And then again, there's like the connection, well, Billy, you know, Billy and the Pepper Pots, and then we have Billy Shears and Sergeant Pepper. And there's all these things. And then supposedly the guy who replaced Paul was William Campbell. And of course, his first name is Billy. And then some people think that Billy Shears is just a shorthand for William Shakespeare because John and Paul loved William Shakespeare. So (laughs) how do they come up with a name? All I know is that Paul came up with it. Was it simply because of a salt and pepper shaker on a flight from Africa to London? You know, could be. Could be. You know, that's what he says. That's what he claims. Before we get into each track, I just want to give out just a little info on the album. It was 27 weeks in the uh, number one in the UK, 15 weeks in the US. 2003, Rolling Stone voted it the number one album of all time. It's one of the best-selling albums, and as of 2011, it was at 32 million. Paul said it was the uh, Beach Boys' Pet Sounds that inspired, but it was also the Mothers of Invention Freak Out album. George Martin felt that Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane was a big fail on his part not to include that onto the album. He felt that the themes of those two songs should have would have really worked out on this album. But didn't need it. Didn't, yeah. This album did not need those two songs. Absolutely yeah. not. There's a high-pitched noise for dogs. I don't know if you're going to mention that. Paul, 700 hours in the studio, and if it would present-day cost, it would be $450,000. I'm going to say half a million dollars to do this. You have to listen to this album in its entirety because that's the way it was designed. If you don't do that, then you're missing out on the whole experience. The other thing is, is that in later days, Paul actually said that Sgt. Pepper is a drug album. And uh, when we get into each track, you know, we could talk about how that pertains. Okay, so we're going to get right into this album. It is on side one. It's Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Okay, well, as I mentioned earlier, straight away, you hear an audience. That's something completely different. And again, I believe it was because, well, it says in the lyrics that they're putting on a show, sit back and enjoy the show. So the new band, Sgt. Pepper, is in front of an audience. And the audience is, was, everybody at home who bought the album and listened to it and listening to it on the radio. We became the audience. We became part of the experience. I mean, this is a brilliant idea. The uh, marching band in the middle of it was based on a melody that Paul had that George Martin arranged, you know, very nicely. (laughs) 
machine band element. Actually, when you look at the movie Hell, there's a scene where the Beatles are dressed up in, in a marching band. They're, I believe it's when and they're in the Austrian Alps. So this marching band thing that's been kicking around, you know, plus, of course, there's that big, that brass band uh, that occurs during, like, the party scene in Yellow Submarine, which had happened, you know, the single, which came out in the summer of 66. So it's kind of like a continuation and an evolving use of uh, the marching band. But what's really nice is that this, the marching band is comprised of uh, four French horns, by the way. Now, in this particular song, McCartney is playing lead guitar and bass, doing the lead vocal. Uh, we've got John on rhythm guitar and George on rhythm guitar, and they're both singing harmony. And then George Barnes playing the organ. This was a total surprise because we didn't know what would come after this first track. Well, next, of course, was this big build-up and introduction to someone by the name of Billy Shears. Now, who the hell is Billy Shears? Because we have Sergeant Pepper. That's one character. And by the way, when you bought the album back then, it came with a huge poster that was similar to the photos of them on the inside when he opened up the LP. And then it had cut out figures that you could cut out, uh, actually, of, I believe, yeah, you had like Sergeant Pepper himself, you know, with the big mustache. And uh, there was a badge, the Sergeant Pepper badge. And then there was uh, something that looked like the bass drum as well. Uh, so what's going on here is that, all right, well, who is Billy Shears? I guess Billy Shears is Ringo, because there's Ringo singing with a little help from my friends. So we talk about with a little help from my friends. Now, he actually says that he gets high with a little help from his friends. Now, this is the second track after the introduction. Well, getting high, of course. It's about drugs. Now, someone could argue and say, well, getting high is about getting high on life, getting high on love. But the Beatles were definitely doing a lot of drugs at this time. And that's why they put those lyrics in. The song was written by Paul and John. It's one of the few songs that they actually uh, wrote collaboratively uh, on this LP. And Paul McCartney's bass playing on this album, and especially on this track, uh, to me, is the best bass line I've ever heard in my entire life. It's syncopated, it bounces around, incredible melodic bass line. The tone of this bass, I don't know how the hell he did it. That combined with the sound of Ringo's drums. Remember, this was done on a four-track machine. And the sound, you could go into a studio today with 64 tracks, and you couldn't get the sound that they got then. This was magic. These people, the Beatles and George Martin were magicians. 
And they were creating magic. This album is total magic. George Harrison plays a really nice uh, lead guitar part on Help From My Friends. And to this day, it's one of the best songs in the Beatles' catalog because it's very upbeat, and we get by with a little help from our friends. So going back to the summer of 1967, you know, the period of the summer of love, we were very close with our friends. I mean, we saw our friends like almost every day back then, and it was the sense of unprecedented camaraderie between our friends. So this song was a perfect song for the times. Absolutely. And also the lyric is so irresistible. Do you believe in a love at first sight? Yes, I'm certain that it happens all the time. Oh my God, you could not but yet fall in love with that type of lyric for the summer of love. This song was perfectly timed for the summer of 67. The uh, Sgt. Pepper song uh, had great covers by Jimi Hendrix, Cheap Trick, and the Flaming Lips. It was 20 years ago today. As a part of the promotion of the Sgt. Pepper movie that came out in 1978, yeah. they released this song, the Sgt. Pepper with a little help from my friends as the A side and a day in the life as a B side as a single in the U.S. And it only hit number 71, but I do remember it on the radio. Uh, Joe Cocker made with a little help from my friends like a big big hit oh uh, yeah I'm tired of you saying no more don't get out of my face Uh, with a little help from my friends is 311 out of 500 of the greatest songs of all time. And that brings us to our next song. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Okay, John. John was doing LSD every, like every day he's doing LSD. Now, you probably know the story. Most people do. You know, people say, oh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds stands for LSD because it's a hallucinogenic drug, and when you look up in the sky and you're tripping on acid, you see all sorts of weird things flying around. So it's very logical, and it makes sense that that's why John called this Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. He's always denied it. Paul has denied it. Everybody denied Ringo denies it, because Julian came home from school and he did a drawing, and he said to this, when John asked him, oh, what's that? And Julian said, oh, it's Lucy in the Sky with diamonds. And that's the story that was inspired, John. You can believe whatever you want to believe. You can believe both, perhaps. I think it might be both, personally. Okay, so we get into the music on this one. These lyrics are some of the most advanced. It's like poetry, these lyrics. They're so loaded with Images, you know, tangerine trees and, and, and marmalade skies and uh, newspaper taxis and, you know, things that you wouldn't think of for lyrics in a, in a song. But John came up with these lyrics and, oh, my God, well, Paul came up with the newspaper taxis. Better get Paul credit for that line. But not only is it interesting lyrically, but musically, 
The verses are in 3-4 time. The meter is 3-4 time. One, two, three, one, two, three, river. One, two, three, da, da, one, two, three, one. And then the chorus is one, two, three, da, da, da. So it goes from 3-4 in the verse and the bridge. And then 4-4 four, four into the chorus. John, as we talked about before, he liked using different time signatures, and this is another example of that. Also, harmonically, this is extremely advanced because, you know, usually in a song, Tom, a song starts in a key signature, all right? You know, if you're a guitar player, for example, the songs usually begin in E, or on a D chord, or on a G chord, or on a C chord, or on an E chord. Usually, or an A minor or an E minor. You know, those are usually the chords. And whatever the first chord is in the song, is usually the, that means the song is in that key. And then you go from usually predictable chords. You know, if you're playing E, you're going to go to an A, you're going to go to a B, you might go to an F sharp minor, and then you go back to an E. Not in this case. Then Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, there are three different key signatures. This is unheard of. Okay? It starts off the verse in A major, then the bridge is in B flat major, and then the chorus is in G. But this is this is very, very advanced stuff. How the Beatles came up with it, I don't know. They had no musical training. And now it's possible that George Martin, you know, was the musical genius in the background saying, Hey, do the verse in A, do the bridge in B flat, and do the chorus in G. This is really, really, very, very unusual advanced stuff that was going on. They did it. God bless them. And then, of course, we get down into the instrumentation on this. You know, you've got John who does the, the of course, the lead vocal, yeah, naturally, and, uh, and the guitars. But then... Um, we have Paul plays the, the bass line again on this song. The bass on this whole album is off the charts. McCartney's bass playing on this album is unheard of, and it's the bass line that weaves us through all those different keys that I mentioned through A and B flat and G. It's through his bass line, except there is that drum break that goes from the bridge into the chorus. That Ringo pounds off the boom. And then George Harrison, you know, he's also playing uh, a beautiful lead guitar. And he's also playing the droning tambora, so we have the Indian influence. And George Martin's on the piano. But that beautiful opening... I mean, that's almost, it's like classical music that's going on. That's Paul playing that, by the way. His musicality is, is, is so phenomenal. 
And sometimes it's hard to fathom. So we went from, with a little help from my friends, It's a Loose Sea in the Sky with Diamonds. And we're rolling into the second track on the album. And everybody is completely blown away. I wanted to add also the influence lyrically for Loose in the Sky with Diamonds for John was that John loved the author Lewis Carroll, and he also loved Alice in Wonderland. So you can listen to the lyrics with Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland in mind, and you can hear the influence. I just wanted to mention that as well. Uh, one thing I noticed is John's voice on this. I mean, you know, what what an idea to completely alter your sound and sound completely different. And this is wild. Like right now, if you listen to his vocal, you're like, it's a whole different person. And he does that a lot through this whole album. Yes, yes. Because not only is John's voice changing, uh, it's evolving in terms of how they're using not only his voice, but all of their voices in the recording studio now. Because the recording studio now is, it's their artistic laboratory, if you will. It really is. And they're using the recording studio as an instrument, really. That's what they're doing. The next song is getting better. And uh, just the notes on it is that, in my opinion, the guitar work from George is amazing. But getting better is... There's so many artists that have tried to nick that guitar sound through the years with uh, uh, Todd Rundgren and, and XTC and stuff. What's your thought of this song? For, it's, for getting better, uh, the inspiration was, you know, Jimmy Nickel was the drummer for a short period in 64 because Ringo was hospitalized. You know, Jimmy's doing a gig with John, Paul, and George, and then at the end of the gig, you know, Paul and sometimes John would go, Hey, hi, how's it going, mate? You know, how's it, how you doing? And Jimmy would say, that's ah, getting better, getting better. And that really was the seed in Paul's mind. He remembered that. And that supposedly was the inspiration for the title. Now, the lyrics are actually, and the verse, are quite negative. I used to be mean. I, I used to beat my woman. Uh, I was cruel. Not really good. Not really upbeat lyrics. The music... Is extremely upbeat, but what they're doing is they're taking, man, I was mean, but I'm changing my scene. It's a transformation of someone who was bad, you know, who was mean, who was cruel, and then on the chorus, it's like, ah, oh, but I've got to admit, it's getting better. Yeah, it's getting better all the time. And then John goes, it can't get no worse. I used to be cruel to my woman, I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. I was mean, but I'm changing my scene, and I'm doing the best that I can. I admit, it's getting better. Lyrically, this is very, very progressive. A very progressive song. Okay, so then we get into this, uh, the bit with the instruments, as you were mentioning. It's almost piercing. It's like, dun, 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 dun. Very staccato. And what it is, it's a combination of piano and also a pianet. And uh, George Martin's playing the pianet and Paul's on the keyboard. <laughs> And as you mentioned, the guitar work on is just superb. And it's a nice balanced collaboration between Paul's 
positiveness. And John actually admitted, you know, later on that he was cruel to his women. That's why he wrote those lyrics. You know, it's autobiographical. So, I mean, no one thought that John would be doing that back then. We all just thought he was, you know, making up some lyrics for a new Beatles song. But, uh, unfortunately, uh, that was the case with Mr. Lennon back in the in the early 60s. Uh, as an album track, I think it's perfect. It fits in, you know, with the whole sound of the album. As I said earlier, you have to listen to the album as an entirety. And this is definitely a, a Paul song with, obviously, some some input from John on the lyrics. Their harmony is a little different, too. Better, better, better. Oh, yeah, yeah. The melody on that part is fantastic. Yeah, better, better, better. stuff, the vocal arrangements. You know, I don't know where these guys were pulling all this stuff from, but it was unbelievable stuff. Fixing a Hole, where the rain gets in. So talk about uh, Fixing a Hole. Okay, Fixing a Hole, another Paul song. What's interesting about this one is that Fixing a Hole, some people, again, this is Paul admitted he said this is a drug album. Fixing a Hole can easily be interpreted as shooting up heroin. Fixing a Hole. Now, did Paul do heroin? No, he never did any heroin. But is this song about heroin? I don't think so. Anyhow, I just wanted to get that out there. This song is, is really quite fascinating because it's something that happened during Paul's life at the time. He had a song in London, and there would be fans outside all the time. And when he wrote the lyrics, see the people standing there who disagree and never win and wonder why they don't get in my door. It's about the fans. Now, what does that have to do with fixing a hall? Absolutely nothing. So, and then we get into the other lyrics. It really doesn't matter if I'm wrong, I'm right, I'm right where I belong. And it really doesn't matter if I'm wrong, I'm right, where I belong, I'm right, where I belong. That gets a little into the whole Zen mode of thinking. Is that, you know, it is what it is. I am where I am. It's all in the now. And it's not a matter of right or wrong. It's just the, it's just the reality of is. This is how it is. And that was a very, that type of a philosophy, again, uh, fits in very nicely uh, with the summer of love. We've got two harpsichords on this song, by the way. We've got Paul on the harpsichord and bass, and we have George Martin on the harpsichord. George Harrison plays two lead guitar parts, and they are breathtakingly gorgeous. The guitar work that George does on this track is just phenomenal. Mr. Lennon, all he does is some background vocals. He doesn't really do that much. He's not much on this track. And the other thing I wanted to say about this one, the day that Paul was going to leave his home, 
to go to the session, someone came up to his door, and uh, Paul said, hello, who are you? And the guy said, I'm Jesus. Paul thought, hmm, well, you know what, you just might be, you never know. So he said, would you like to come to the recording studio with me? And so <laughs> Jesus said yes, and Paul said, as long as, you, you know, as long as you're quiet, you can come. So he brings this total stranger, I guess the guy must have had a long beard and long hair, looked like Jesus, I guess. He brought him to the recording session, a total stranger. And either John and George and Ringo and George Marley, you know, what's going on here? And Paul's like, oh, that's Jesus. You know, I thought I'd bring him into the session. <laughs> this is very, very funny. But this is the kind of shit that was going around, you know, happening back then. And, of course, you know, Paul was, you know, Mr. Pothead at the time. And I think at this point, I think he had also taken uh, acid as well. So there's so many drugs floating around that, you know, you never know. He didn't want to take a chance and think that if it was Jesus, he didn't want to insult him. Very, very funny story. But lyrically, this song is kind of all over the place. I'm fixing the hall where the rain gets in. It stops my mind from wandering. I'm filling a crack, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I don't quite get the, how the verses uh, tie in with the, the rest of the song. But anyhow, it's a, the sound of the song is very unusual. It's not rock and roll. It's, you could guess you could call it kind of uh, classical meets pop, is what I would call it. But a great song, nonetheless, on the Sergeant Pepper album. I love that Jesus story. Never heard that one before. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah, Paul said that most of these songs are pot-related. That was one of them. Uh, She's Living Home is just John and Paul. Um, There is no other Beatle on there. I love Paul's background vocals on this. Uh, His background? He's the lead vocal, Paul. Yeah, but when he goes, Fun! Fun! Like, uh, it's very Beach Boys. Are you still there? She is leaving. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's John. Yeah. That's Paul and that's Paul and John together on the chorus. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. It just uh, gives me chills when I hear it. Something they've never did before. But the story is amazing, and you can talk about the song. Fun is the one thing that money can't buy. Is that not just a, a lyric for the, that generation and that time period? Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> what a mantra for that time period. It is number five of the best songs of all time from time out in london believe it or not they said it's a masterpiece okay she's leaving home what was that lyric you said earlier tom money is the one thing that money can't buy what is it fun is the one thing that money can't buy yeah fun is the one thing that money can't buy if you remember back to 1964, you know, they were saying you can't buy love with money. And now, three years later, they're saying you can't buy fun with money. Kind of interesting, because even those lyrics are evolving. Uh, this is a Paul song. John did, you know, he worked on the chorus with Paul. But this is predominantly another Paul song. This is a classical song. It has nothing to do with pop, nothing to do with rock. It's classical. You know, this is a song that, you know, maybe Schubert could have written, for example. There's no George on the track. There's no Ringo on the track. So it's predominantly Paul with a string orchestra, uh, which includes, uh, you know, the double bass, stand-up bass, and a harp. And the harp is played by Sheila Bromberg. Uh, she is the first female musician to play 
on a Beatle record. I'm not talking about some of the string players that played on Eleanor Rigby, but as the first solo female to play on a Beatles record. Of course, she didn't get any credit. Now, this arrangement was done originally by Mike Leander, who was a prominent arranger in London at the time, because George Martin was busy working on something else, and Paul, he couldn't wait. He wanted to get this done. George Martin was offended. He was really offended that Paul could not wait. But that's what Paul did. And then after Leander did the arrangement, he brought it to George Martin. And George did make a few changes. Not a lot, but he did make some changes. So it's, it's a masterpiece. And this is a perfect example of the freedom that they had to record something that they didn't have to think about, oh, you know what, we have to perform this as a Beatle band. No. But for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, it, it fit in perfectly because this is another aspect of the new band, of the Pepper Band. It's a continuation of Paul writing stuff like Eleanor Rigby. So you go from Eleanor Rigby and you go to She's Leaving Home, obviously two very different songs. But in terms of a genre or an idiom, they're not that far apart. And yes, I know about the, the Melanie story, and they, they were reading the newspapers every day, and they would you know, read different things, and they would pull different things from what was going on in the newspaper. Paul denied it, and, but it's about, it's about a girl growing up. It's about her growing up and leaving home. Why is she leaving home? To be free. And again, just in terms of the uh, societal evolution of what was going on with the kids and the teenagers at the time, we all wanted to grow up. We, wanted, we didn't want to be living at home with mom and dad anymore. You know, we wanted to leave home. And some of us did. You know, a lot of kids left home in the summer of 1967. Where did they go? They went to Hyde Asbury in San Francisco. They all went to San Francisco. They left home. So again, in terms of what they're saying about leaving home to be free, fit in perfectly for the summer of love. Yeah, it's also, it's, uh, it's, it's a weird uh, contradiction because it's about a generational gap where the parents are square and the kids just got to you know, be who they are. But the music right. is, you know, classical and it's, it's not rebellious at all. It's completely the opposite. It's a weird, you know, comparison between the two. It's it's their biggest rebellion song ever, and it's done to a classical performance. That's a very good point, Tom. Because in that sense, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all. But there's a a somberness, there's a sadness about why I think they went with the string orchestra because the string orchestra, as you were just saying represents who? It represents the parents who say, what did we do that was wrong? You know, since she left a note behind, we struggled all of our lives to get by. And so the string orchestra is for the parents. That's what the string orchestra is all about. She, we gave her most of our lives, is leaving. Sacrificed most of our lives. We gave her everything money could buy. 
know, for an album cut, it's mind blowing. You know, it's just a mind blowing song. And it gets to the next one, it's equally mind blowing. Fantastic song to listen to with a headset on is the being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. It's just all about a poster that John bought while they were making Penny Lane. You know, he just bought it and kind of rips a lot of the stuff up. But what I think is fun is that George Martin plays the piano, the harmonium, the Lowry organ, the Wolitzer organ, the Hammond organ, and the glockenspiel, and tape loops on this song. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, how about that for being involved? And what you get is uh, something pretty special. Can you talk about this song? Yeah, well, this song is total psychedelia meets a turn-of-the-century carnival. So we have the carnival atmosphere, absolutely, with all of these organs and keyboards and glockenspiel that you mentioned going on. And this Mr. Kite is another... We know that he's from... The poster. Okay, I get all that. I know that I've got the 19th Century Circus poster, and Mr. Kite was on the poster. But Mr. Kite is also part of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band show. He's another character in the show. So just to you know, go through this, we have Billy Shears as a character. We have, well, of course, we have Sgt. Pepper, number one, the first the main character, the leader of the band. Then we have Billy Shears, who's a character in the band. He's in the band. Then we have Lucy in the sky. We have the magical Lucy. She's in the band. And now we have Mr. Kite, and he's another character in the band. So this is another aspect of Mr. Kite being part of the Pepper Show. He's another character in the band, and it's perfect. I mean, it just fits in perfectly to the overall concept of the album. You can feel the carnival atmosphere. I mean, just by listening to it, you know, with all the keyboards and the organs and the calliope, it's, it takes you to another place, unlike the other places on the album. took you into the psychedelic world of, of hallucinogenic drugs. I mean, absolutely. That's what those lyrics to me represent. She's leaving home, you know, takes you to a, a sad place, you know, where the parents are and they're upset about losing their daughter because, you know, they work so hard and yet all she's doing is leaving the note and she has broken their heart. You know, that's a whole completely different place. And now... We go to this carnival atmosphere. It's also the middle section. Anybody hearing this for the first time, you're hearing, it's like an orgy of sounds which you cannot identify, that you are completely captivated with, fascinated with. You don't know what the hell is going on. And this was during the walls part. And again, Mr. John going from the song is in 4-4, four, four, 
and their waitresses, and of course, Henry the horse dances the waltz, two, three, boom, bop, bop. It goes into the three, four time for the waltz, naturally, which only makes sense. And of course, Henry the horse dances the waltz. was George Martin knew that John really wanted something very out there in terms of sort of a randomness almost to create, again, orgy of sounds. It's as if you're walking through a carnival park and you're hearing simultaneously, you'll hear the sound of the Ferris wheel at the same time of the carousel, the merry-go-round, the same time as another ride or two going on simultaneously. So yeah, George Martin told Jeff Emmerich, just take a bunch of tapes that had organs on them and keyboards on them and harmoniums on them. Just cut them up into small pieces and shake them up in the bag and dump them out on the floor and just tape them together randomly. <laughs> into, you're getting into the avant-garde now. You're getting into stuff like, you know, John Cage, and you're getting into some uh, some advanced contemporary composers who were doing things like that. harmonicas on this track, Tom. I mean, you've got, by the way, John also made some tape loops, but George, for instance, plays the harmonica. McCartney is playing lead guitar on this song. I don't know if people know that or not. And of course, it's bass. Uh, and then Mal Evans plays the harmonica. And then Ringo plays the harmonica. And then Neil Aspinall, one of the Beatles' managers, plays the harmonica. So there's tons of harmonicas, uh, more harmonicas on this song than in any other song uh, in the Beatles repertoire. It's a magical song to this very day, and it's a perfect song to go on the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Van Elk. That's a lot of harmonicas. <laughs> That's a lot of harmonicas. <laughs> George was working with uh, only a northern song, and they discarded it for this song. And and looking at only a northern song, I have no idea why they would think that would fit on this album in, in the way it does. Within You, Without You is not my favorite song. I think it just goes on a little too long. We were talking about the space between us all and the people who hide themselves behind the wall of illusion and never glimpse the truth. We just ended side one with the 
carnival psychedelic Mr. Card. And now we go to India with George Harrison. This is Indian classical music. There's no John, there's no Paul, there's no Ringo. This is a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. It was right for the right time for the summer of love again. These songs, I tell you, Tom, these songs resonated with millions of fans and teenagers. And this song was definitely one of them because it's about universal love. Not only was he, George, singing about, he's saying that with our love, we could save the world if they only knew. And the time will come when you'll see we're all one and life goes on within you and without you. With created a whole movement within the Beatle movement. People were wearing Indian clothing the summer of 1967. They were wearing the madras, the madras clothing. Uh, the girls were wearing the long madras dresses, and men and women were wearing beads. It was a whole movement that came out of George Harrison, him and his further involvement with Indian music and bringing it to the forefront. That's exactly what he did with his song. He said, without saying it, this is where it's at, boys and girls. This is the Indian classical music and this is the Indian culture and I'm giving it to you. And he engaged the listener and he's asking the listener, are you one of them about hiding behind the wall of illusion. He's saying, see beyond yourself and you may find peace of mind is waiting there. I mean, these are very, very profound lyrics for a rock and roll guy. George had evolved so much because of his love and experience spending six weeks with Ravi Shankar in India in November of 66 to try and master the sitar. I am so glad that this track is on the album. This Sgt. Pepper album would not be what it is without, within you, without you. And it's his only track on the album. Now, the previous album, as you know, as we talked about, George had three songs on Revolver. He went from three songs to one, but oh my God, what a song. And he didn't have anything else ready to go. You mentioned correctly that they had recorded a Northern song, but 
they didn't want that on this album. The Indian culture and this Indian music piece is part of the new band. And that's pretty heavy for John and Paul, because that's what they're doing, especially Paul. This is Paul's record. You know, so for Paul to do this, okay, okay, well, so, you know, all right, George, you know, you know the song, and, uh, you know, so they're with Indy without you, it's part of Pepper. It's part of the Pepper band. Pretty amazing, you know, because McCartney pretty much had control over this, over this record. Yes, there's eight violins and there's three cellos. And under George Harrison's direction, George worked with George Martin to have the dialogue going on between the sitar and the string instrumental in the middle of the song. The, the meter of the song is, again, is something we're not familiar with because it's an Indian meter. It's more like 7-4 seven, four, seven, four time. Most people don't know it's 7-4 seven, time. That's seven beats per measure. Instead of four, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The very unusual, the seven is an odd number. And uh, I love this track. The other thing uh, that I should mention is that the dialogue and, and again, the string arrangement that goes on, the strings are actually... There, it's called glissando or glissandi, where they're sliding up and down, which ties in with what? The way that George Harrison bends the notes on the, on the sitar. All this kind of... And it's brilliant, the way the synthesis of Western instruments with Eastern instruments. example of East and West meeting each other in a musical composition. First time, no one had ever done this before, other than what George did with Love You Too on Revolver, but not to this extent, because on Love You Too, we had, you know, fuzz guitar and we had other things going on. This is the first time that any band had combined predominantly Indian classical music with strings, with violins and cellos. God bless you, Mr. Harrison. The next song is When I'm 64, and John had mentioned that this song was written, bones of it were written during the, the cavern days. So they've been sitting on this one for a while. It had a, a hit by Kenny Ball and the Jasmine. It was released as a single in 1967. In UK, it hit number 43. There are other... John Denver and Cliff Richards also recorded it. When I get older, losing my head Many years from now Will you still be sending me a valentine Birthday, three, three, bottle of wine If I get home at a quarter to three but would you slam the door? Now, this, to me, 
even though this was the first song, by the way, recorded for the Pepper album, but they didn't even know it was the Pepper album at the time, which is interesting. You know, they recorded this in early December of 66. Now, the supposed story, which I mentioned earlier, is that Paul came up with the concept for the album in November of 66, and now, supposedly, they recorded this one not knowing what the next album was going to be. So there's all these, you know, there's a lot of gray areas going on here. This song could have been on Revolver. This song would have worked on Revolver. Does it work on Pepper? It works on Pepper because it's on Pepper. But is it like all these other character songs on Pepper? No, it's not. The connection I make with this song is She's Leaving Home. There's a connection between She's Leaving Home and When I'm 64. Because it's about, obviously, being older. So in a way, you know, Paul wrote both songs. So he's addressing and he's speaking to the parents out there the moms and dads. That's the connection that I can make. Other than that, character-wise, it could have been something different, you know? It could have been another, if he came up with, you know, some, at that time, you know, he was always writing stuff. You know, I'm trying to think now, like, for instance, on Magical Mystery Tour, which would be the next one, The Fool on the Hill. Now, there is a good example. The Fool on the Hill is a character. That, to me, would have been a better choice than when I'm 64. I know I'm probably pissing off a lot of people, but it's just my thought, it's just my opinion, and no one has to agree with me, of course. It's just a thought. There's nothing wrong with when I'm 64. It's just that when you look at the, the album and how it's a concept album, I just wish it was about a character, and that's why I thought, you know, a character would be the fool on the hill, which would have thought, I thought would work in beautifully. This is a total Paul song. I mean, he's playing the piano, he's playing the bass, Ringo plays uh, a beautiful, he plays some great cymbal work. He overdubbed just all this cymbal work. If you listen carefully toward the last verse, it's incredible that he does. And he plays the tubular bells. And then George Martin did the two clarinets and one bass clarinet. Uh, John supposedly plays lead guitar. There is lead guitar, but it only happens during the last verse. So this, there's very, very little John on this track, which would make sense because this is what one of those songs that John would call a granny song. And he didn't like, you know, John didn't like these songs. So I'm surprised that he even played any guitar at all on this one. And George and John, though, they do beautiful background vocals, though. Really nice background vocals, similar to the background vocals that they did on coming up on Magical Mystery Tour. Similar vocals to Your Mother Should Know, another Paul song. That's my take on when I'm 64. Our next song is Lovely Rita. I really love the John intro and to me the outro of the song. 
seems like overtly sexual with them groaning of John and Paul. I think it's pretty wild. It matches the lyrics, but it doesn't at the same time. Like it seems like it's taking those lyrics about like sexual frustration and kind of just going in a different direction. A lot of comb and tissue. Yeah, uh, going on. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. kind of—you could hear it there. They yeah. do that every now and then. Yeah. That's Domino, Easy Star, Lonely Hearts Dub Band. All the covers on it. Lovely Rita, need a man. Nothing can come between us. When it gets dark, I tore your heart away. Nothing can come between us. This is a perfect example of another character in Pepper's band. And this character happens to be Lovely Rita. This is so perfect for this album. Not only because now we have another character in the band, but the way that the song is produced is part of the magical, psychedelic, hallucinogenic. You see, that was the thing about When I'm 64, too. Is when I'm 64 is a clean, compared to all the other songs on this record, it's very clean. You know what I'm saying? The production is clean. There's not all this production and swirling and effects going on. Lovely Rita. Hello. <laughs> it's like, wow. Listen to this. The sound of the band is phenomenal. And yes, you know, Paul got a party ticket and that was supposedly the inspiration. I guess that would make sense. But as you were saying, what they did was, there's the lyric. He went, took her out and tried to win her. Then I, he brought, brought her home. I nearly made it, sitting on a sofa with a sister or two. Took her home. I nearly made it, sitting on a sofa with a sister or two. Tried to win her, win her over, and nearly made it. You know, back then you made it by making out. And making out means you were kissing and fooling around and having a lot of fun <laughs> with your girl. Plus, he's sitting on a sofa with a sister or two. Uh, he's sitting on a sofa with, you know, maybe two girls. Ooh, well, that's exciting. So that's the connection. Say, so, well, what's all this moaning and groaning and the heavy breathing going on at the end of the song? That's what it's about. That's the connection. That's connected to the lyrics I just cited. And they're having so much fun on this recording. Oh, my God. They're having a total blast. You can hear it. I'm surprised that they're, you know, they weren't laughing when they were doing the, the moaning and breathing and the groaning. But anyhow, the sound effects are over the top almost. You know, they're all doing this calm and tissue paper with that kind of sound. You know, who the hell was doing that? Nobody. Again, innovation. You know, these guys are just 
so creative. And, they, and again, you know, they're in a studio now, and they don't have to worry about rushing out to play a concert in Manchester, England, or get on a plane and perform in somewhere in Europe or the U.S. So they're, you know, they're indulging. And boy, I'm glad they did. Uh, this is a magical, another magical track. To me, it's a showpiece. It's a show number. It's a show number in Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. It's akin to Mr. Kite, in a way, even though Paul predominantly wrote Lovely Rita and John wrote Mr. Kite. In terms of production and in terms of concept for the album, oh my God, it's just absolutely perfect. And it takes you away because you don't anticipate the ending. And it's just kind of rambling on with the banging piano, the heavy breathing. You don't really know where it's going to go. And then finally you hear, you hear this rundown on the keyboards. And then Sean says, leave it. And that's how it ends. It's a very strange ending, but it works. And I love it. Oh, and by the way, Paul McCartney's bass line. Oh, gee whiz. Oh, my God. This guy is such a monster. You know, let's listen to that bass. Uh, on the whole record, but boy, especially on this track. And then George Martin, you know, plays that incredible piano solo. It's kind of like a rolling, old-timey piano solo, which is perfect. So George Martin, you know, obviously he had his hands, as you said earlier, you know, he had a lot to do with Mystic Tide, and he had, let's face it, he had a lot to do with this entire album. This is one of my favorite tracks on Pepper. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's funny because uh, it's very modern now. Like, it's way ahead of its time, and it still holds up as a really complex, cool track. And the uh, same with uh, Good Morning, Good Morning. You know, that is just a take on the Kellogg's Cornflakes commercial in the morning. Kellogg's waits for you with vitamins, iron, helping you have a great day. A very good part of starting your bright new morning is Kellogg's way. Well, isn't it amazing, Tom, that someone is watching a TV commercial about Kellogg's Cornflakes, and this is the result of it. Now, who, in the, who else in the world would be able to do something like that other than John Lennon? Sometimes it's almost incomprehensible to think of the degree and the level of creativity that these guys were working with, that they had, is just phenomenal. Just because of watching a TV commercial, we get this piece of music. And you want to talk about John changing time signatures? Oh, my God. This song is an... 5-4 time, 5 beats instead of 4, then it's in 4-4, four, four. then it's in 3-4, then it's in 2-4. I mean, this is like all over the place. Ringo was able to traverse all these time signatures, God bless him. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, of course, it starts because, well, in the morning, if you live on a farm, <laughs> not living in downtown London or New York City, you know, you might hear a rooster first thing in the morning. So that was clever and appropriate. 
brass. Now, this is interesting. We're getting into the, the Beatles using brass ensembles in their songs. We talked about how Paul used the brass on Revolver, which probably gets you into my life. Now, John's turn. The sound of the brass is extremely bright, the way it's produced. And it's almost biting. It's almost in your face. And Ringo's drumming on Good Morning is, if you zero in on the drumming, it's like, oh my God, what the hell is he doing? It's some of the best drumming Ringo's ever done. It really is. After a while, you start to smile. Now you feel cool. Then you decide to take a walk by the old school. Nothing has changed, it's still the same. I've got nothing to say, but it's okay. Good morning, good morning, good morning. And then, the, you know, the lead guitar solo? You know, it's playing the lead guitar in this. It's Paul McCartney, and that guitar solo absolutely rips. It's one of the best lead guitar solos ever, I think. And it's Mr. Paul doing that. Yeah, I wanted to mention that this really is John giving us a portrait of a day in the life. You, you wake up in the morning, the rooster wakes you up, you go to work, you don't feel like going to work, you walk by the school you used to go to, you're flirting with the skirt, you go to see a movie, you hope she joins you, and then it's time, evening comes around, and it's time for tea and meet the wives, even though I know that's from a TV show, but still it fits in. So this is like a miniature, oh, okay, this is like a day in the life. Lyrically, this is a day in the life, which is fascinating because we know we're going to be getting to that. And of course, John wrote both of these songs. So there is a connection between the two songs in terms of the title of A Day in the Life and the lyrics and Good Morning, Good Morning. Absolutely. The ending of the animals, and again, the stereo, moving from right and there. You can actually hear the animals chasing each other and they go from the right speaker and they move to the left speaker. I remember hearing that at the first time at my friend's house and it was like, it was just, it's hard to describe the first time. It's hard to put words to it. You just, all you could do was play it repeatedly over and over again and that's all we did. This album was played over and over all summer long. Everybody was playing it. to play this album once because there was so much to listen to. It's a very dense album production-wise, lyrically, musically. The Sgt. Pepper's reprise. No brass on this and it's a faster tempo. I'll be honest, I love this version a lot. I think it's funky. It's a like a really cool rock song and the only downside that I have is I wish they would 
do a whole song of this. Like, this is it. Like, I love to hear this. It just goes away so fast, and it, it doesn't seem fair. It's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yes. Now, what's curious about this is that this was Neil Aspinall's idea, by the way. And it's a brilliant idea. You would think it was Mr. Paul's idea, but no. Neil came up with this idea. This is the end of the show. We're sorry, but it's time to go. So then you think, okay, that's the end of the album. It starts with the audience. We hear Sergeant Pepper at the beginning, and now we're hearing it again. The Sergeant Pepper band is saying, we hope you have enjoyed the show. We're sorry, but it's time to go. Goodbye. So that should be the end of the album. It ends with applause. You know, the audience, the fans, the listeners, we loved it. All four Beatles, they all sang lead vocals on this bit, by the way. George supposedly plays lead guitar, but I think it's Paul. Sounds just like Paul, just like he played in the opening. What they could have done, you go from Good Morning, Good Morning, which I'd mentioned is a day in the life. The lyrics are a day in the life, which you do through the course of the day. Going to work, don't want to go. Walking around town, go to a show, you hope she goes, etc., etc. Go from Good Morning, Good Morning. And when you hear the animals going from right to left, it goes into John's acoustic guitar on a day in a life. Think about that. And then at the end of a day in a life, when it builds up the orchestra, with Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And then you go to the Sergeant Pepper reprise, and it ends, and that's the end of the show, and that's the end of the album. How about that? Now, again, I know people are going to say, what the hell is the matter with this Brooke Halpin? You know, what is this guy talking about? You can't do that. Well, I can do it. I have a, you know, software program where I can move things around. I've tried it, actually. Sounds pretty amazing <laughs> to me. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? In terms of a concept album, that would be the perfect... You know, beginning and ending. You don't end the show and then, oh, gee, by the way, here's a whole other song. 
It doesn't make any sense if you're talking about a concept album. If you're just doing a bunch of songs like you did on Revolver, sure, it doesn't matter. But if you're looking at the concept, that's what I say should have been done. How about that? I can see that. I know that they have that dog noise after the piano break at the end, and then they have that weird outro that the UK has, where it's like gibberish for uh, 30 seconds or so. Uh, oh, the gibberish, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I, that's, not, that's, not on the, uh, that's not on the original album that I got in 67. Oh, no, no, that's not on there. It's no, not. No. But I'm just trying to yeah. figure out why they would do that. I'm fine with it. It doesn't diminish it. I just go back to the Sgt. Pepper reprise. Give me the full song. I want the full song because it's, it's, they're jamming and it's awesome. Well, <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. They're cooking. But it's a reprise, so it's going to be brief. Yeah, it's so, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. I'm sorry yeah. Well, you. if you're going to change stuff, I'm going to change it too. I mean, I want the whole. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what you? Okay, so you're going to make that longer, and then I'm going to move some songs around at the end. Yep, and then we have a perfect album. <laughs> then it, then it's perfect. <laughs> okay. Go ahead, give me a day in the life. What's your thought on a day in life? Oh my god! Oh my god! This is drugs. You know the drugs, huh? There's a couple of drug references. First of all, he blew his mind out in the car. You know, that was an expression when you blew your mind back in 67. That meant you were high. Oh, wow. That, wow. Oh, man, you're blowing my mind. Oh, I blew my mind. That means you're having, you know, these mind-expanding experiences. That's a complete drug reference, number one. He blew his mind out in a car. Number two, Paul says that he had a smoke and then he went into a dream and then it's well, what do you think kind of smoke he had? He was smoking pot. That's the reference, you know, when you smoke pot, you get into like a dream state. I'm way upstairs and had a smoke. Somebody spoke and I went into a dream. That's another drug reference. The 4,000 holes, I don't believe, although some people claim it is, I don't believe that's a, that's a drug reference. But the biggest drug reference is, I'd love to... Well, I'd love to turn you on again back in 1967. How did you turn people on? You turned them on by giving them a, handing them a joint or giving them some drugs. That's what you did. And John and Paul knew that when they wrote that lyric and they kind of, it was a joke between them at the time because they knew that that's what, what it meant. So this song has those drug references. You got that beautiful acoustic guitar in the beginning. Paul's playing the piano and the bass. Ringo's drumming sounds like all of a sudden he's turned into a timpani player with the London Symphony Orchestra. How the hell he did that, I don't know. But you zero in on Ringo's drumming on the day in the life during the verses, and it's 
It almost doesn't even sound like him. The working title for this was uh, In the Life Of, which is very close. The combination of the two songs is brilliant, and yet they have really nothing to do with each other. Musically, they don't. Lyrically, they do, because if it's in the day in the life, and John's describing about his day in the life and the things that are going on. You know, he read the newspaper, and it was an article about somebody getting a car crash, and somebody won the war, and I'd love to fill the holes in Blackburn, Lancashire, because there was an article in the newspaper about the uh, the roads needed repairing. You know, the holes need to be filled. Okay, that's kind of like a day in the life. But Paul's little bit about, woke up a lot of bed, had to come across my head. You know, that's completely about a segment of what goes on in the beginning of your day in a life. Musically, how are you going to put those two things together? Mr. George Martin and Paul and his ideas, bringing in the 40-piece orchestra and the idea of doing an orchestral glissandi. Glissando, where all the instruments are sliding up from their lowest note to their highest note possible. These are members of the London Symphony Orchestra. They play Beethoven. They play Mozart, Rachmaninoff. They play Tchaikovsky. Every note is printed out on the page. They thought that the Beatles had lost their minds. They thought that George Martin was a crazy man. But they did it. Martin recorded the orchestra at least two times. So they're not playing exactly in sync with each other, which creates this chorus effect. So instead of it sounding like 40-piece orchestra, it sounds like an 80-piece orchestra. For this to be going on in 1967 in a rock and roll, quote-unquote, rock and roll band, rock and roll album, no one in the world could have done this. No one didn't do it at the time, earth-shattering, breaking new ground. You know, the Beatles were listening to Stockhausen and Berio, and they were even listening to John Cage, you know, and these contemporary composers. So they had some ideas here and there to do things that were not within the rock idiom. Now, oh my God, you know, what they did here uh, to this very day cannot be done by anyone else. It's an absolute masterpiece. The piece stands up on its own. Does it belong on Pepper? Yes, I think it should be before the reprise. By the way, when they recorded the orchestra, it was a party atmosphere. You had Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, you had Mary Faithful, Keith Richards, Donovan was there, of course, George's wife, and even one of the monkeys was there, which is interesting, Mike Nesmith. So there was this party atmosphere. The Beatles were partying a lot. They even gave out, like, hats and costumes and false noses to the orchestra members. Now, again, these are some of the most conservative musicians in London. Some of them did it. Some of them refused to participate. Then there's the ending chord. And the ending chord, you've got three pianos, and the chord is being played by John, Paul, Ringo, Mal Evans, and then George Martin is playing the harmonium.
the ending chord is definitely John Cage influence because it goes on for like I think what thirty four seconds or forty three seconds, something like that, one or the other. Sometimes I switch my numbers around. That's very Cajun, if you know anything about John Cage. Now, one of the things that I need to point out to the listeners, and this gets a little touchy, so you're going to have to forgive me. I've listened to these lyrics a million times. Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of what, Tom? What's the lyric? Lords! They'd seen his face before. Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of Lords. House of no. Lords. No, it's not Lords. No, it sounds like it. No. no, it doesn't sound like it. You think it says Lords because that's what's printed on the back of the album. You listen to it again. I have the isolated vocal tracks to this song of just John singing. He does not say Lords. He blew his mind out in the car. He didn't notice that the lights had changed. A crowd of people stood instead. Nobody was really sure if he was from the house. Of fall, F A U L. Fall is code, nickname for Paul. This was all part of the Paul McCartney death hoax. They were planting the seeds, even on the Pepper album of Paul McCartney dying. There's a in ton November of 66. Yeah, there's a ton of clues on this album. But this one is blatant. You could even listen to it without even the isolated track. Listen to it after we do this interview. He does not say Lords. There's no Lords. He doesn't say Lords. But in 1967, everybody heard Lords because we were we were looking at the lyrics on the back of the album while listening to the song. Of course, he said Lords. It's printed. If it's printed, it has to be true. They'd seen his face before. Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of So that's a little thing I wanted to add to this. And then also the panning that they were doing now with stereo, you know, it starts off with John's lead vocal to the right and it moves to the center and then it moves to the left and then it moves around again. And then we get into, again, the ending. The ending is just, it's hard to describe. It's brilliant, it's creative, it's innovative, it's groundbreaking, it's utilizing elements of avant-garde composers that I've mentioned, combined with the brilliance and the creativity of the Beatles and George Martin, and that's what you have. Now, on the album, there was no, they call it the inner groove gibberish. No, no, there was none of that. Many years later, when I got the CD, I heard it. Now, what the hell are they saying? Do you know what they're saying, Tom? No, not at all. Again, it's all interpretive, and there's no right or wrong. It's whatever you perceive it to be. I'm hearing, never could see any other way, never could see any other way, never could see any other way, or never could be any other way, never could be any other way, never could be any other way. So when you play it backwards, <laughs> okay, <laughs> it says the bookie man is super dead. <laughs> The boogeyman is super dead. The boogeyman is super dead. The boogeyman is super dead. And then, <laughs> and then there's some laughter. 
This album had no singles, and you'd think there'd be a, a single here or there. They released All You Need Is Love in July. 2.5 million albums were sold in the first three months of this. Did talk about it uh, for a Grammy Album of the Year, Best Album Cover, Graphic Arts, Best Engineered Recording for Non-Classical, and Best Contemporary Album. So, uh, all well-deserving. When you rank this, uh, we said that for both of us, Revolver is number one. What would this be number two, or how would you rank this? Ah, this album is the most unique album in the Beatles catalog because it's a standalone album because of the production, because of the material, because of the time it was made, the time it was released, because of the summer of love. All of those things combined, which was going on with the social evolution and people doing drugs and all of that going on, that this album cannot be compared to any other album in their entire catalog. It cannot be compared. So now with Pepper coming into play here, today, for today, I would put Sgt. Pepper first, then Revolver, then Rubber Soul, then Meet the Beatles, then The Beatles Second, then The Hard Day's Night, then Help, then Magical Mystery Tour, then Introducing the Beatles, then Beatles 65, then Beatles 6, Yesterday, Today, and of course, Last, Something New. That was absolute truth. But I mean, Tepper, that was it. This blew all those other albums. They were gone. No one even thought about Yellow Submarine anymore. Are you kidding? But over time, Tepper would wear out. It would wear out. It didn't have the longevity of a revolver or a rubber sole. Because it's so specific to the summer of 1967, whereas Revolver was not specific to any time period. You could listen to Revolver in 1964, 1969, or 1976. Didn't matter. Pepper is summer 1967. So if you want to have a summer 1967 experience... You have to listen to Sergeant Pepper. Overall, 
you know, sometimes it's like, all right, yeah, summer of 67 was mind-blowing. It was one of the best times of my life, actually. You know, then Pepper is number one. But then when I compare it to Revolver and the great variety of songs and production on Revolver, then I say, oh, you know what? Yeah, Revolver's number one. So I go back and forth. You can't, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to pin me down, brother. No, I totally understand what you're saying. Like you, we see the artistry of this album. It's a given and it's a piece of art, but I'm looking at it as, okay, 50 years past, what do I pick up first? You know, in the last like 10 years or whatever, I would say Revolver's number one and then Rubber Soul's number two for me with Sgt. Pepper third. And then uh, I know that you you cast off yesterday and today, but uh, that would be uh, my fourth, Beatles second, Intro to the Beatles, Meet the Beatles, Six, Something New, and then We Love Our Soundtracks, Help, and A Hard Day's Night, uh, round up the end. <laughs> right, right, uh-huh. right. Sergeant Pepper was great. It's a great, uh, this is a, a great episode to, you know, discuss the the, the amazingness of it. And, uh, you know, it's weird that even Magical Mystery Tour is just coming up in a couple months just the outpour of like creativity in one year again with the Beatles we talked about 64 and 65 66 67 doesn't discriminate on the high quality of music that they're producing at this point yeah well that's very true and of course American Mystery Tour is next and we'll get into that but in terms of sound production okay there are some similarities uh, between Magical Mystery Tour and Pepper, and yet at the same time, you know, there's some differences. So things were starting to change as we get into Magical Mystery Tour. There's some carryover, though, that's what I'm saying. And we'll get into that when we do our next session. Yep, so it is the Magical Mystery Tour. It's coming up. Uh, it's uh, the Beatles Come to America. We have Brooke Halpin. The Beatle Guru knocks out Sgt. Pepper in a two-hour marathon discussing the qualities of the album. And, uh, <laughs> I, and I said, I'm going to just stand back and let you run on this one. So you must be tired, and I appreciate you for doing it. No, I'm excited. I'm all pumped mm-hmm. up now. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, we're coming, we're coming to take the audience away. We're coming to take your audience away, Tom, and that's what we're continuing to do, hopefully. There, there's one thing that you know, I had a question of that is related to the album is the, the, it's a four track. So the sound quality, when they bump these tracks, so they would do yeah. the like bass and drum together and then they would bump it together. So they're right. stuck with that. Like they're not, they can't go back and, and say, uh, no, I think I like a different track. So they have to feel pretty comfortable about what they're going to keep and stay with it. I think that's pretty interesting right there. Like how did it, how did they do like a benefit from Mr. Kite with four tracks. That's that's crazy. Okay. What you're referring to is something called pre-mixing. You have four tracks. So on track one, you have, let's say, rhythm, guitar, and drums on track one. On track two, you have keyboards, piano, organs, harpsichord, harmoniums, whatever. So you then you mix down the guitar and the drums with the keyboards, okay? You mix on one and two down to track three. They're mixed. Now, you're right. Whatever you do, baby, that's it. They're done. You can't go back and try to make something louder or softer. That's it. So 
the degree of expertise involved in doing that is Tehran. Are you kidding me? Wow. Okay, so you mix the guitars and the drums and the keyboards down to three. So now you have three tracks open, right? Then uh, Mr. McCartney puts on the headphones and he listens to the guitars and the keyboards and the drums and he lays down a separate bass track on track, oh, let's say track, track one. The good news is now is that the bass is on a separate track. And when you listen to Pepper, and when you listen to the bass playing on Revolver, you can hear how prominent the bass is. You can hear those bass lines, those bass parts have to be on a separate track. So then you take, now you have two tracks open for vocals. Like you do all your vocals on track two. You mix them down to track three, which has, if you remember, the rhythm guitars, the keyboards, and the drums. Okay? So now you have two tracks open again. What's interesting is like they've made a, a, a pack that they would never delete any of their material. So they had all the uh, you know different tracks available so they can come back to it. It's almost like a surgeon where you're like, okay, well, I like take sevens bass, you know, and I want to use that one. And I think I, we learned from the anthology that George Martin was cutting and pasting different tracks together that we weren't aware of. A little, little of one and then a little three. And Before you mix down, okay, to your point, track one, guitars. Track two, drums. Track three, bass. Track four, vocals. Now, you could take those four tracks, and if you don't mix them down, they exist. Well, you, have, you still have the individual tracks unmixed. That's what you're talking about. You have the four tracks unmixed. Now, if you take those four tracks and put them on a separate tape, then you have your four tracks open again, don't you? That's the other way of doing it. Well, you're not doing any pre-mixing. The way I was talking about before is you do the pre-mix to open up the other tracks. But as long as you have another four-track machine, which I think at some point they did, at some point they did, they had more than one four-track. They, well, they probably did. Well, that makes more sense because I was like, wow, yeah. precision of, like they had just one four-track. If they had multiple four-tracks sitting there, then I would feel more comfortable because I was like, how do they... How do they do that? And like now, what is a, a mixing board now? What, a, a, like a 36 or... A, oh, you have 64 tracks. 64, have, yeah. Well, so, no, I mean, with, with Pro Tools, you could go on to that. Yeah. Unlimited yeah. number of tracks. Yeah. So it's wild. That technology that they... I mean, the, the, the album's technical, and just the fact that they what they had to do with the mixing is, is pretty impressive, too. Oh, absolutely. But they did. They were doing pre-mixing, as I mentioned. They were doing pre-mixing to open up tracks. You know, that's one reason how they were able to, for instance, you know, record the orchestra for the day in the life. You know, they had to be listening to the playback of the piano and the bass and the drums that the Beatles had recorded. So George had to do some pre-mixing. And boy, I'll tell you, when you pre-mixed, that was it. I mean, you had to be so damn skilled. What a, what a, what a talent that is in and of itself. And the, just one other comment. Uh, the Day in the Life, the video of that you see on MTV once in a while is stunning. Like the, the, 
making of the song and the chaos yes. and the editing of it and yeah. uh you know just the who's in the studio uh yes yeah, the party atmosphere yeah. i talked about it's it was a party it's it's a shame it seems like that came after the fact like that wasn't a promo for the song at the time it seems like someone cut that up afterwards and you know we got that years later i don't know if it's 1978 or not but it's pretty wild. It's a great video. It's like a whole movie almost. Yeah. It's a shame because that, you know, what, you know, Magical Mystery Tour should be is just them doing songs, like videos of their songs and, and stay well, away the, from the scripted stuff. Well, yes. Yeah. And we'll get into that big time on the next review that we do with Magical Mystery Tour because Magical Mystery Tour, at its best, is a collection of music videos. Yeah, and that's, yeah. It's At its best. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And that's the way it should have been, and people would have loved it, and it would have never had any negativity. But, okay, we're, that's how we're going to end this today. All right, we'll, 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 uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Uh, FYI, yeah. I, I love Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, even though it's a soundtrack album? Uh, it's a full album, and I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, I've, I, the movie is, I've never seen the movie as far as I know. I mean, you have never seen the movie. I've, oh my I've seen bits and pieces of it. Okay. Uh, we got, we got to, we got to save this conversation. Yeah. For I, I, I'm going to see if I can find it on YouTube. I mean, I saw all the videos like Blue Jay Way and stuff. I've seen the music pieces and I love that. I've seen the spaghetti thing. I've seen singing on the bus. Yeah. I don't know what else I'm missing. So, um, It'd be nice to see. I there there are many times that I think they did a uh, an upgrade on the the DVD about maybe ten years ago. So there was an opportunity that I should have got the whole package, and I didn't do it. I have I have regrets in my life. All right, buddy. Well, I'll fill you in. Okay, no problem. All right. Okay. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Right, bye. Bye. Next episode: The Beatles, The Magical Mystery Tour. Now enjoy an original Brooke Hoppin composition, Liars. Speak the truth That's all there is From someone's lips from someone's kiss I believe Your laugh, your cry In a world Where no one lies La 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 lies La 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 liars La 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 lies La la Then tells a lie Sneaks around And ruins lives La 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 la
is exposed eventually. Changed. It's so much worse. A cry and shame. A nasty curse. This side of the infectious lies. Rock the mind. Honest truth. It's hard to find. La 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 la. of episode.